welcome to the Global Discussion, discussions with creatives, leaders, and thinkers. Today, I'm joined by Fiona McEntee. You're very welcome to the podcast, Fiona. Let's begin by asking you to introduce yourself to our international audience today. Tell us a little bit about your journey and what you focused on. Thank you so much, Simon. Um, I am delighted to be joining you from my second or adopted home of Chicago. Um, it's probably, you know, pretty obvious instantly that it's not my first home when people hear me speak, but I have been in Chicago for about 20 years. Um, moved here from Dublin initially on a one-year exchange program through my university studying law and um, came back a couple of years later and I've pretty much been here ever since. Um, and I have been an immigration attorney, U.S. immigration attorney for 15 plus years. Uh, well, look, I mean, you're an award-winning uh, U.S. immigration lawyer. You took on some pretty big um, situations. You've You've appeared on CNN, BBC, RTE, the Irish National Broadcaster, the New York Times, uh, a number of times on CNBC uh, for some very specific uh, type work. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about the type of work that you've really been involved in and maybe get under the uh, under, underground on that? Tell us a little bit about the the implications of the work that you do, particularly when it comes to travel and immigration. Yeah, so I've been practicing, as I mentioned, for for my career, which has been over 15 years. But I think, you know, my role fundamentally changed during the previous administration that came into the US. Um, you mentioned like some of those media pieces that I had done, and I was a stranger to media up until um really I'd done some very small things, but but kind of the, the first day that I got this exposure was the first day of the Muslim ban. Um, viewers, listeners may have seen some of those uh, pretty horrific scenes that happened in airports throughout the US. And I was, along with my brother, who's a partner in our, in our law firm, we were one of the first attorneys at O'Hare Airport um, when, when all that was unfolding. And I ended up becoming the media spokesperson for the group. Um, that's kind of how the media started. It wasn't an intention of mine to you know, put myself in the what ended up being pretty scary, you know, interviews live with like earpieces and all sorts of stuff happening, but being like having the experience as an attorney and having clients that that I met that needed me and and recognizing the really privileged voice that I had and and being able, I'm a U a naturalized US citizen now and being able to really use my experience and my voice to advocate for people. That's kind of how the media stuff started. It really wasn't a plan, but I felt like I, you know, I kept thinking to myself, how can I say no? There's a mom and a child that are being detained for no reason other than the fact that they were originally from Iran and I have to do this. And so that's kind of how all that started. Yeah, thanks for sharing that with us, Fiona, because it, I mean, it sort of happened so quickly. And I suppose that media cycle, that particular media story, it really took off and accelerated quickly, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And I think it's because people realized um, really the danger of the administration and um, that we they, we realized kind of what we were dealing with. We'd all heard, you know, the then candidate Trump's tweets in relation to banning Muslims. And, and then we saw, oh, no, this wasn't just a threat. They're actually trying to do it. And I think everybody, every immigrant, no matter where you're from, no matter what your experience was and no matter what your status was, because the, the person that we were representing was a U.S. citizen baby that was being detained. Um, I think people just realized, oh, my gosh, this is day one or two into the administration. What's next? And it was, to be honest, every week there was something else that happened. Um, a lot of a lot of which ended up in the media, not all, but um, you know, I think people were really shook to, to our core. Um and yeah, it was just really the first in many of many horrendous things that we saw during the prior administration. And what was it like being sort of all of a sudden thrust into the the center of that? Because you you kind of were very honest there at the start and said it, you weren't really in the middle of that media story prior to this. You had a successful practice, um, but this kind of really uh, changed the direction a little bit, I would assume. Yeah, it did. I mean, to kind of personalize 
how I felt at the time. I had just come back from Ireland with my husband and two kids. It was just after Christmas. And I remember landing touchdown O'Hare with your two kids. And I don't know if anyone's listening, if you've ever flown internationally with children, like it's, you know, generally not that fun, right? It's exhausting. And so we, I remember arriving in O'Hare and going, oh my gosh, I just want to get back to her house. I'm so exhausted. And I remember thinking, that's how this mom feels. Um, she's flown all the way on her own because her husband was there to meet her. The baby's 18 months old. I'm sure she's exhausted. And, and instead of being able to come in as a green card holder with her US citizen baby, she was ended up, you know, detained for upwards of five, six, seven hours um, with no end in sight. So as as kind of unplanned as it was, as unprepared or untrained as I was, I was thinking I could have been that mom. I was that mom, except for I am white and Irish and a US citizen as well. But like, how I just feel like sometimes we're faced with situations in our career or in our personal life where it's like a crossroads and it's like, what path are we going to take? And I felt at this time, that I didn't, ha- I, I knew that what I needed to do and as scary as it was and um, as yeah, grossly unprepared, I just felt like I had to, I had to do it. And I kind of, that feeling has just continued really. It's like, how can you say no? So um, yeah, so that's kind of how I felt at the time. Well, th- thank you for sharing that side of the story because it's a real, I suppose, a, a, a person, almost a personal calling that you you kind of put yourself in the the shoes of somebody else and say, well, what if it was me? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you stepped up there into the the world's media. But uh, I, the other thing I wanted to ask you a little bit about as well was the the story was not just the immigration situation and the challenges that you've sort of explained, but also from a from a startup perspective. I know you've done a lot of work in this area too particularly when it comes to uh, people, you know, moving to a country with a particular skill set, a particular job. And there's been a lot of controversy and a lot of discussion, particularly in the US, around different types of visas, which, you know, to some degree impact a lot of the startup sectors. So could you maybe just unpack that a little bit for our audience? Sure. Yeah, this is the huge passion of mine. And this is where the bulk of my career has been spent, really, in relation to startup and business immigration. Um, You know, I think the interesting thing for people to know, which comes as a surprise, I think, to people, is that the the U.S. immigration laws, the actual underlying legislation, has not been updated in over 30 years. Um, You know, Congress in the U.S. is the one that passes laws and they haven't passed any really meaningful immigration laws or any significant immigration laws in over 30 years. So if you imagine the type of work that we see with startups, you know, social media platforms, fundraising, VCs, you know, exits, like growth, all this kind of stuff that we are very familiar with now, none of that was anticipated by the U.S. immigration laws when they were when they were written by Congress over 30 years ago. So we're kind of trying to fit a very modern situation into extremely old laws. So the U.S. does not have like a standalone startup visa. And um, that's something that I've spent a lot of time working on. Um, I'm actually just writing, just about to finish a piece that I've written with an immigration attorney who's based in the UK and, and some attorneys based in Canada and kind of comparing the system in the US that we have with um, the, the system in the UK and in Canada. And you see that those countries have modernized and updated their immigration system and created startup options and, and really looked at how, you know, how do we need to respond in terms of laws, um, you know, to the current working practices. Um, and I think, unfortunately, the US's loss is going to be other countries' gains. And so I've been trying really hard, along with a lot of people, you know, a lot of stakeholders here to try to bring this to the attention of Congress and I submitted written testimony for a congressional hearing and have been writing and speaking a lot on this and just trying to explain to people what, you know, the status quo and kind of why we need to change that. So that's a big part of what I do. Yeah, thank you, uh, Fiona. And I suppose from one end of the scale, which is the startup environment, and, you know, a lot of these small, maybe tech companies, you know, they can go on to become unicorns and huge global international companies. But you also had a lot of pushback from a lot of the tech companies, whether it was Silicon Valley or further afield throughout the US, where the the visa situation, particularly for the, the international talent that they needed, became quite challenging. Um, and there was there were quite 
um, interesting moment in time where people were saying, well, I, I might have to leave the country here. Um, so yeah. I, I think there's a real human story to that, isn't there? Yeah, and we're seeing it today with all the mass layoffs that we're seeing in tech, right? And um, that's been a real frequent story here because it impacts so many people. Um, you know, and a lot of these visa holders that have been here for like a long time that are getting laid off, you know, they're a subset of, of people who are getting laid off, some of whom are, are here on visas. And so, you know, a layoff is hard enough. Obviously, it's extremely hard, I'm sure. Um, but in addition to the immigration consequences of a layoff, you know, some people have been here for many years have U.S. citizen children or you know working and then if they get laid off you know depending on their situation they may have 60 days to get a new job or might have to leave the U.S. and so you know that's been in the news a lot as well it's like what are the options for these people and um, you know America does have a, a need for talent especially in tech but not exclusively but there's like a big gap in the skill sets here in the U.S. and so um, you do find that um, immigrants, skilled immigrants coming in and lots of these different fields really add a lot to the environment. And it's like how they've been paying taxes, contributing so much. And, and so, but then if they get laid off, you know, it's like the clock has started to tick for them. And that's been a big story that we're seeing and the kind of human impact of, of those mass layoffs from an immigration point of view. Yeah, and I suppose at the time of us recording this, we're, see, we're seeing a continuance of those layoffs, uh, given the, the the global economic sort of backdrop. Um, and the, the, the thing that I wanted to ask you, though, I mean, you're obviously a passionate advocate in this area, and I know you do a lot of great work here. But have you seen any positive changes? Like, have you have you seen any progression here? You know, are we making progress in these areas? That is such a great question. And I would kind of preface this by saying, I believe that to work in this field, you have to be inherently optimistic, I think. Um, I feel like it's almost like a prerequisite of working in immigration is that you have to be an optimist. And it's actually part of our firm's core values because you need to believe that the system can be better and that you also want to try to work to make that happen. And if you don't feel like it can be better, then I, you're not going to be able to do that work, to put that work in, to try to make it make a difference. And I have seen some really positive changes. I mean, I think, you know, um, one thing the Biden administration brought back, you know, this, I could probably spend an hour discussing this one particular issue, but there's essentially, there's a startup parole program for um you know uh, startups that have raised venture capital or um been receiving grants from from the government so it's not a visa because it wasn't passed by congress but it is like an executive regulatory action kind of like how daca if anyone's familiar with that how the obama administration created daca this was created using the existing parole law so it's an option for startups but basically this was supposed to go into effect in the trump by the Obama administration, just as the Trump administration was starting and they stopped it. And there was huge amount of advocacy. There was litigation that they were sued by the National Venture Capital Association and some other groups that said, you can't just end a program with no notice. There's procedures and, and you know, they won, but it never really got going. The Biden administration brought that back. And that was based on, I think, because of a lot of advocacy, um, you know, with stakeholders who and really like brave clients that were like, you know, talking about their experience, people who brought the lawsuits. And um, I think all throughout like DACA, if you're like, you know, that kind of the dreamers. And um, while we don't have Congress, to, Congress hasn't passed a law, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court case essentially found that the Trump administration failed to take into account the impact that these people were having um, in terms of like employers and a lot of the big tech companies joined in and wrote briefs in support of DACA. So I really believe that we have seen some positive changes. I'm excited about more to come. And I think that it, we're not just shouting into the void that, the, that we can be chipping away and creating like positive changes. And I also think it's like, you know, I've written a children's book on immigration um, called Our American Dream, and that is so important to me. So um, it's like, how are we influencing and, and discussing immigration with this next generation? You know, so that so that we don't get to a point where you're able to think of immigrants as like subhuman, you know, that you can rip children away from them at the border. And I think it all starts, honestly, with you know, talking to kids about immigration and the fact that immigrants are among us, right? We are, they're our teachers, our neighbors, our friends. Um, 
And so that's another thing that I'm passionate about is like how how are we, you know, talking to kids about the topic of immigration? And it's super important when we look at what's happening, what happened in Afghanistan and in Ukraine and where we're seeing refugees and being able to, you know, talk about the importance of welcoming others and what that would be like if you were told to just like leave your home one day. You know, kids need to be, I don't think that's, you know, you can have age appropriate conversation with with children about these types of things too. Yeah, it's a, it's um it's it's a huge complex topic uh fiona and you know regardless of your political persuasions or whichever country you're in there's you know there's the borders there's the immigration rules there's the business rules there's the human story and the human consequences uh, and administrations come and go all over the world um but it is a it it's not straightforward it is a huge complex issue and I suppose the thing that um, I'm thinking about the most when it comes to this is the impact of, I suppose, the pandemic. Uh, you've mm. mentioned things like, I don't want to, to sort of not reflect on what you've said in terms of, you know, there's a war going on at the moment, you know, there's this huge yeah. uh, mm-hmm. trust is taking place around the world in various sectors of, of the world. Um, but just to, just to bring it back to something that I think a lot of people on the, on the planet are very familiar with, which is, lockdowns the pandemic going through two three years more mm-hmm. of restricted movements fear concern job losses shutdowns yeah uh, going back to in person and there's a there's a huge discussion that that continues to go on today around the impact this has and the future of work um the way that we live uh, because it's you know whether you whether you're all in on remote first remote working working from yeah. home working from anywhere on the planet we've seen a lot of digital nomads and countries coming out with specific visas to support people whether you're in the hybrid camp which is i'll take a little from column a a little from column b or whether mm-hmm. you're in the i want to get back into the office world but from your perspective as an immigration lawyer and somebody that's passionate about the startup immigration scene in particular has that fundamentally changed the argument from your perspective? Because it doesn't feel like we're going back to the way it was pre-pandemic. And the the rules, the laws, the immigration, as you were saying, some of this stuff hasn't been touched in 30 years, three decades. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the, I don't know if it's irony or I'm not sure what use, word to use, but we're talking over Zoom right now um, that was founded by a Chinese immigrant to the US, you know, and I think that it, it, we're constantly seeing how immigrants can bring this like innovative, innovative ideas to and, and to to the future of work as well. You know, you're seeing these amazing ideas that can help really transform how we're working, how we're communicating. Um, so we just wanted to acknowledge that um, when we talk about these immigrant success stories and startups, you know, this is a perfect example of one. Um, I think that there always will be the need for like in-person stuff. I think we fully embrace hybrid here. We have people working remotely and then in office some days because unfortunately the government still requires like paper filings. So I think that, you know, what we're seeing from our clients that maybe um, we work with a lot of startups that are based outside the US and Ireland, the UK and Europe and, and are, you know, expanding into the US as well. Um, you know, there was definitely a big lull for a time period over the pandemic. Embassies were shut down, consulates, there were travel bans, you know, there was all sorts of things going on and obviously concern about traveling and, and you know, vaccinations. And also there's so many immigrants were involved in the vaccine as well. Um, so I think though we're starting to see that need for like getting back in person happening. And so I think that I believe that companies to be competitive will have to be, um, you know, we certainly are embracing the hybrid nature and just really having a culture that I think affords flexibility is going to be important. But I am still very much seeing a need for like people who want to be physically in the US. So that is very much still happening. And I, I can't see that going away I think if anything it's kind of reinforced the value of those in-person connections as well so that's what I'm seeing yeah thanks Fiona thanks for your views on that because it you know we I just wanted to bring in that sort of global landscape picture as well because sort of outside of the U.S. the whole world is going through a change in terms of the way it works too 
Um, and a lot of people are defaulting to hybrid. Uh, there are some remote only uh, type organizations, um, but I'd be struggling to, to list many companies that have, you know, there's been a few headlines where they've insisted on everybody going back yeah to mm-hmm. the office i'm not sure they've all been as successful as they may be headlined as but hybrids yeah <laughs> uh, the um I, I suppose just to wrap this this section up then um right now from your viewpoint because obviously you've got a lot of experience in this area and you know you, you're working in it day to day um what what sort of challenge do you see ahead of yourself you know is this are you just staring at the mountain and just going okay we'll just keep chipping away or how do you even you know from a business perspective sort of tackle something like that because to an outsider it seems like you're trying to move mountains here it seems (laughs) huge yeah sometimes it, it does feel that way um but look I think the the I want to make it clear that it's, you know, our advocacy in relation to immigration doesn't change when we get a Democrat in the White House. You know, we continue to move, try to move the needle, if you know, more so than ever. Um, but the good thing is that we do have a receptive audience in the White House that appreciates um, immigration. And so, you know, we've I've actually been, you know, in a position to have meetings with members of the White House and members of the Department of Homeland Security in relation to startup immigration, talking about some of these things, talking about, you know, I formed a coalition um, for to work on some advocacy in relation to this startup parole that I mentioned, where we put together a series of recommendations and submitted a letter to Secretary Mayorkas. So, I mean, I'm a firm believer in, you know, with work, picking something that you're passionate about and like creatively thinking of ways that you can can chip away at that. And I think, yes, it is some some days it does feel like we're trying to push the boulder up the mountain. But then when I look at things like the Biden administration updated a policy manual that that is trying to encourage more STEM and entrepreneurs to come to the US. They they modernize the examples of evidence that we can use in support of some of these cases. So while the underlying law hasn't changed, the policy has been updated and has been more reflective of modern working practices. So we are seeing movement there and we're seeing some, you know, a few other things have changed in relation to, you know, the new option has been introduced for expedited processing. It's a national interest waiver um, green card that you can self-sponsor. Previously, you weren't able to, to expedite that and now you can. So that's been a new change. So we're constantly seeing all these changes. And I think from my point of view, I'm still writing op-eds. I'm still, you know, sharing stories. I'm still collaborating with my colleagues and with um, people who care so deeply about this. And so I think it is, It on the one hand, yes, there is a lot to do. But on the other hand, we've already, we have succeeded in many things and it is encouraging and it's inspiring. And I think you know, my motto is that life is um, too short to hate your job or to not fully love it. Right. And I think that that's it's those types of like achievements and this collaboration. And my team is amazing and they're all so supportive. And so, um, you know, that's kind of what what keeps us going as we're trying to push that boulder up the up the mountain. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Fiona. Um, I, the other the other thing uh, just to change gear maybe slightly as well you you're sort of giving back because I know you do some mentoring I know you're involved in some Chicago uh, incubator uh, and I also want you to maybe just tell us a little bit more about the book because you kind of mentioned it earlier and I yeah skip over that so you know the process of that how did you find that Sure. I actually, you know what, I'm about to send some copies out. So I have, uh, I have it here. So it's called Our American Dream. Um, a portion of the proceeds are actually going to two immigration nonprofits that do incredible work in the space as well. But um, it's, re- it's based on real life client stories. And um, it was, it was written, I have two kids that are now nine and seven, but I, I kind of wrote it or got the idea for it when all the family separation and all this horrendous stuff was happening about immigration. And I thought, you know, we have to be able to speak to kids about this in a way that that makes it accessible to them. And I thought, you know, I have some uh, really the a front row seat to really beautiful immigration stories that not everyone gets to see. And I thought maybe I could put them in a book. And so that's kind of how it started. But um, so I am super passionate about that. And I um, you know, I think it, it started with my, with my kids. But um, I actually got a text the other night from one of the moms in the class. We gave my son's friend a signed copy for his birthday. And she was like, 
telling me her son loves the book and I was dropping my son off and he's like I love your book and he was like so I'm like oh yes you know it's like if it if I can connect with some of these kids and get to talk to them about this it's like a huge passion of mine um so that's the book and in relation to mentoring yes I have mentored thousands of startup founders throughout the years um I a lot of times they're here as international students as I once was so you know while the path I walked was slightly different in terms of going to law school and not becoming you know a startup founder I can really relate to that feeling of you know the insecurity of of you know not knowing what the next immigration step is like and so I try to counsel them on that and I have an ebook that's coming out specifically in relation to startup immigration um and I'm hoping that it's going to be available free and I'm hoping that it's like an easy to access guide it's like written in question format I kind of summarize the questions that I get frequently but I just can see the amazing things that immigrant startup founders can do um, if they're given the chance and they're given advice and they're able to you know navigate the immigration system while simultaneously building their company and you know I have had many clients who have had these really successful exits built like products that are literally saving American lives. Like one of my clients, Mert Aziri, this is all public, of course, because I'm a professional secret keeper, unless it's public. Um, he He's a Turkish immigrant and he founded a company called Swipe Sense with some American um, classmates when he was at Northwestern. And that company, it, it got acquired, but, it, you know, the mission was to help prevent the spread of hospital acquired infections. And it was a software and a tracking system. And then it, it expanded to asset tracking and, and actually like contact tracing during the pandemic. And like, what a time, you know, the, he, he founded this years ago. Um, and, you know, walking with Mert on that journey was just so special for me. And just to see like, these are literally, we're not, you know, exaggerating. His company is actually saving lives in America and we're better for having immigrants like Mert here. And so whatever I can do to help people on that journey, I am very passionate about it. And I want other people to know when they think of immigration, like I want them to think about the Merts or the future Merts um, and to think like, let's see what we can do to give these people the chance. They're not looking for handouts or anything. They just want the opportunity to stay here and work hard and immigrants always give way more than they take to any country yeah you, you're making me think as you're talking there Fiona about there's often a list that comes out every year I'm not sure how often it's updated but a number of media outlets publish this list and it's when they look at the top companies in the US mm-hmm. whether they are publicly listed companies with international operations whether they're the latest fastest growing unicorn or whether it's that hot tech startup that's you know rapidly expanding and they Mm. normally compare it to the ceo or the founder and they kind of list it by are they an immigrant or not yeah to the country and it is always staggering that the majority are immigrants you're uh, totally or son, right. Or sons or daughters of immigrants. Am I yeah. right in saying that? Well, not no. I mean, you were right in the fact, but the majority, over 55% of America's unicorns have an immigrant founder. And when you add in the children of immigrants, it's even it's even higher. 80% of them have an immigrant in a key leadership role, such as CEO, CTO. And yeah, so over 55%. And that is more than half, but it's it, it even more than half just at the immigrant level, not let alone going down to the next generation. And so what you find, though, is that, um, you know, these immigrants have succeeded despite the immigration system, not really with its support. You know, some of them have come through the refugee process or through the family based immigration system or come as employees and then gone on to find their startup later after getting their green card. And so imagine how many more unicorns we could have if we were able to actually support them on their immigration journey. And that's a statistic that I you know, I feel so strongly about and also one quarter, I know all these stats, I'm so excited to be able to share them with someone who also has like read them, but um, a quarter of those unicorns that we mentioned were founded by someone who came here as a foreign student. So um, you're right, the statistics are all there. And I think, you know, it's it's not easy to emigrate to any country. You know, that is not an easy thing to do. There's a lot of things to navigate. Um, and so I think that immigrants in general are extremely entrepreneurial, whether they're setting up, you know, where startups that ultimately go on to become unicorns or whether they're what they call here the mom and pop business, you know, the local small to medium sized businesses, they're the backbone of the economy. So um, 
Yes, absolutely. All the statistics show how much immigrants can bring to the US. And I'd be happy to share. There's a link to that report if anyone's interested in seeing the cold hard data. And I can also share the link to my ebook. It should be available um, when this is out. So I can share that too. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to include that because I think I, I often look at that study and it it, it, is, it often takes me back, you know, back at how much of that is such a multicultural um, uh, melting pot of talent mm-hmm. uh, yeah. that, that, that helps everybody ultimately. Yeah. Uh, and I know there are challenges. I know there are, there are other sides to that story and that, that argument and there are uh, issues and challenges, but there are huge opportunities too. And um I, I think the work that you're doing here is uh, commendable because it's not easy work. You know, it's not everybody that could actually uh, make a difference here. So that's great. And thanks for sharing a little bit about the book as well, because you're also looking at it from a, a multi-generational approach or the bigger picture, which is almost changing the narrative uh, to some degree, uh, which is great too. So as we as we change gear a little bit, uh, Fiona, because I know you could talk about this passionately all day. Oh, uh, you can tell. <laughs> I can I can tell. Uh, but look, that's yeah. why you're an award winning um, immigration uh, lawyer, right? I mean, it, it's quite obvious that this is your you know your your passion. It's something that you really care about. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about. You've wrote a book, but when you read a book yourself, uh, when you're not the author. Um, how do you take on board information? What's your learning style? Obviously, becoming a lawyer, there's an awful mm. lot of learning involved. Um, but are you an audiobook person? Are you a written book person? Are you constantly scouring the internet for articles and reports? How mm. do you learn? What kind of things do you like to read? Do you read for pleasure or business or is business your pleasure? So how does that work for you? I love that question. Um, and I haven't been asked anything like that, which is great. Um You know, I think for me, my job involves reading pretty much all the time, right? I'm constantly reading, I'm constantly writing. Um, But I do like reading outside of work as well. But I am pretty much a physical book person. Um, I'm not really an audio book person. And I have a couple of books on my iPad, but I tend to gravitate towards the physical book. Um, I'm kind of an uh, underliner and a highlighter type person as well, which leads me back to my law school days. I think that a lot of lawyers are like, you know, highlighters and kind of maybe not and not exclusive to lawyers, but that's the type of like, you know, reader that I am. I mean, at any one time, I you know, I'm also at confession, a serial starter of books. Um, so I have about four or five on the go at any one time. Um, and I'm trying my New Year's resolution is to try to, you know, finish a book before I start the next. So um haven't fully succeeded in that mission, but I'm I'm trying. So and are you reading startup type books? Are you reading just completely something completely different, fiction over here somewhere? What yeah, what, kind of- what sort of things interest you? kind of a mixture um at the moment I'm reading I'm reading a couple of books on venture capital um so that's like business related um because I'm very interested in that I work with a lot of VCs and the job that I do and um that's something that I'm kind of interested in um I'm also actually reading a book about um it's called signs it's about um signs that we get from our loved ones who have passed away that's like a personal thing for me because my cousin died of cancer um a few years ago and so that's like a personal book um what else is on my nightstand there's a couple of other things but they're the main ones that I'm reading right now so I'm going to finish the signs book and then move to another one hopefully I will succeed in my new year's resolution so yeah yeah well that's great thank you for sharing that it it just helps our audience get a little bit of insight into the other the other aspects Um, yeah beyond uh, the work stuff yeah exactly yeah and building on that maybe if I can just ask you another question when you look back, whether it was, you know, back to your studies or back to your childhood or something that happened to you recently, um, there must have been people along the way, along your journey that you admire or people that have inspired you, or maybe it's a particular character trait. When I throw that question at you, what springs to mind, Fiona? Um, I would say like straight away, I want to mention my mom, my mother, mum, right, as we would say at home, Um, my mum, my dad too, but my mum really has, you know, she's been an entrepreneur, a small business owner my whole life. Um, my pa- Neither of my parents got the opportunity to go to college because, um, you know, we just 
growing up in Dublin, you know, back then, my dad was the eldest of eight kids. My mum was the second youngest of 11. Like, it just wasn't a, an option for them, um, even though they they were smart enough, of course, to have gone. But they just, they needed to, my dad especially, needed to go get a job, right? His dad was a bus conductor. His mother was at home raising the kids. And so that was his path. And my mum also went to work for the civil service and they met in there um, when they were pretty young and the rest is history. But um, my mum, my parents, I think, always wished that they had the opportunity to go to college. And, um, you know, they were really, you know, they made sure that we knew the importance of education and, and the, the privilege that it was, right, to be able to go to college. Um, and so, you know, my mum was a business an entrepreneur and I think she broke some glass ceilings back in her day telling me stories of like negotiating with like all men in terms of leases and things like this and so she always really inspired me um, and always made us feel like you know we could do whatever we wanted and they supported us so much and my brother also became a lawyer the two of us and it's it's kind of funny because studying law in Dublin like a lot of my classmates were were children of lawyers um and I don't think I'd ever even met a lawyer you know in my life um and so their dads were or their moms as well were judges and and barristers and you know and and for me I'd never I don't think met a solicitor or barrister certainly not a judge um until I met their parents but um you know, my my peers never made us feel like we weren't like worthy enough to be studying there. But, you know, I think that that the, the legal industry in Ireland was was kind of a lot like that, where it was family members and stuff like that. Um, I think it's because the system, right, with the barristers and solicitors, it's it's hard in terms of like getting business. And so America always kind of seemed like didn't really matter where you were from and there's loads of people who are first generation college student and so um but yeah when I think of people who inspired me it's definitely my parents um made us feel like the you know the importance of education and then just this idea that if you worked hard and were determined that you could really achieve whatever you wanted yeah I love that Fiona thank you for, for sharing that with us um I have to ask though. So obviously your parents weren't lawyers, you know. You didn't seem to know any lawyers or barristers or solicitors. No. So how did you end up doing the degree? You know, how did you end up at university studying it? Then you must have decided at some point for you and your brother to end up in law. Yeah, that is also a great question, and I would say I actually didn't really decide that. So what happened was I was, you know, not bragging, but I was very smart and I got one of the highest points in, in you know, in the in Ireland in terms of like the leaving certificate. But so I kind of knew that I would have potentially have a lot of options, but I didn't really know what I wanted because I liked science. I also liked languages and just liked a lot of different things. I liked business. And so my mom sent me to this uh, like a career counselor basically like an aptitude test I went out to this person's house spent a morning a whole kind of after hours basically doing all these aptitude tests before so this, I probably like 16 or 17 before the um you know you had to pick in the leaving search how it works in Ireland so spent the day out there he studied all these like you know aptitude and personality and all things like this and he basically said to me I think you, he actually said journalism. He said, I think you'd be, which is so ironic. He said, I think journalism would be great for you. He said, but he said, a lot of journalists have law degrees as primary degrees. And he, you know, cited like Mary McCallaghan and all these really famous Irish journalists who had the base law degree. He said, so what I think you should do is see if you can get enough points to study law. And then that could be like at post, you know, your bachelor's, you could then go in and do maybe a master's in media or in journalism. So I thought, you know what, that sounds like an okay idea. And so I felt like, you know, it was he, he was pretty clear that this is what I should do based on everything he had done. So that's how I ended up picking law. And you know, to say the intersection of both of those things is really massively what I do on a pretty regular basis. So um, he was right, I would say. So that's how I ended up. It wasn't so, like I yeah. met somebody and like thought, oh, I want to do that. Like, I didn't even know what lawyers did or anything like that. So, yeah, here I am. <laughs> it's an incredible story from there to now running the, the McEntee Law Group in the US and all yeah. the work that we've been discussing uh, and and your brothers in tow as well 
Uh, it's yeah. an incredible story. Uh, so thanks. Yeah, I, I keep saying anytime anyone asks me, I have to say I must find that person if I can remember who he was and thank him and tell him whatever happened, because I'm sure he'd like to know. And I still haven't done that. So I need this is a reminder that I need to do that and see if I can find him, because I'm sure he'd like to know if he was ever right about some of his kind of predictions or some of his advice. So I must remind myself. Yeah. So. And I think that journalistic sort of trait maybe that he pulled out from some of those tests, you know, your your sort of media active, it was sort of activated through that media stories we were talking about earlier and some of the, the cases that you had to take uh, up and some of the stories that you had to really get into in a big way. I suppose you've got this cross-section, haven't you, of the law mm. and the media coming together. Um, yeah. As, as yeah. is normally the case in, in you know, big challenging situations. Um, yeah, and the media is a powerful advocacy tool. But yeah, it is that intersection of law, advocacy, media. And I just think, you know, media is just a tool that we have in our toolbox that helps us to advocate sometimes for specific cases, but then other times for the system as a whole. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, the other thing I want to ask you, Fiona, is you must have received some great advice. So obviously we've talked about one piece of advice, which is, oh, maybe you should study law. I mean, that seemed like pretty good advice. Yeah. But when you look back and I ask you that question, has there been some advice that you've really took to heart that stayed with you, whether it's business or in your personal life, that you think is really important? Or do you find yourself often sharing advice uh, with people or with companies that you think is really important for our audience to know? Um, I would say both, right? I think, um, and I think for me, I feel like I'm constantly getting advice still and giving advice, right? Both. I mean, I think to this day, I, I have a, I work with a, um, group, a lawyerist, they're like career coaches. I have an amazing, um, coach there, Stephanie, who's the CEO. So I'm getting advice from her. I am giving advice to my team and to other people. So I think it's constantly that dynamic is happening. Um, but as far as actual, you know, practical advice, um, one thing that I learned before, just before I opened up my firm, and everybody probably knows this now, but back then I was like, oh, I didn't, I'd never really heard of it. The concept of zero inbox. Um, and that to me has been the cornerstone of my firm and how I operate, um, getting, replying pretty much that day, getting them out, not using your inbox as a to-do list. And um, that is something that I really try to make sure that we do here in the firm. Um, and it's it's something that we're known for being responsive to our clients because when clients are going through something, you know, immigration is a huge milestone for people and, you know, they need someone to be responsive, even if it's just acknowledging receipt, you know, and saying, I need to look, you don't, no one's expecting you to, in, you know, be a massive encyclopedia at any second or just be sitting there waiting for a very complex fact pattern, but people need to feel acknowledged and 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 you know just that you're taking in their their email so that's something from a practical point of view um and then as far as giving advice I do feel like I have a team that I try to lead hopefully with grace and um you know inspiration on a daily basis and you know just talking to to them like I'm all, all constantly learning as well I think that you know being humble admitting your mistakes I don't know everything certainly not I make mistakes I think acknowledging them and we can all learn from them together in terms of like you know no one teaches you how to be a leader of like we we learn the law but we don't necessarily know how to manage people or how to you know there's constantly things that we're always learning so I think being open to that and realizing that it, it, you're doing both hopefully every day learning give you know taking advice and, and giving it to yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of two things, something you said earlier, which was, you know, I like the written book and I like to write notes in it. And I got this vision of anybody getting a book after you've had it. And it's got yeah. the notes and the sticky notes in it and the, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the circles. And then, you you know, then you, you've sort of doubled up on that with the it's the it's the lawyer in you. It's the legal yeah. in you. It's a. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I like definitely inbox yeah. zero because no, I'm kind of <laughs> I'm kind of cringing at inbox zero because I fail miserably at inbox zero. I have tried it a number of times, but but you've made an important point because obviously I've been involved in lots of different businesses around the world, and working with a legal team uh, or a legal firm or or an individual within a legal company, you said something really important. That human, even if it's just a little acknowledgement, I got it. 
I'm here, yep. I'm looking at it. Mm-hmm. It makes such a difference to the recipient. Yes. Uh, so I know I'm kind of teasing a little bit there about Inbox Zero. I wish I was as good as uh, at doing that as you obviously are. But um, I think that there's something about the attention to detail, particularly when it comes to legal matters, yeah, that really count. And it's that relationship and that human side. Of course, you've got the law, and the law is one thing. We touched yeah. on media a little bit today as well. But that human element to it as well. And it's sometimes it's as simple as saying, yeah, they got that. They're working on that, you know, and it, yeah. it, it's really important, particularly in the work that you do, I suppose. Absolutely. And I think it, it boils down to having empathy for people, like putting yourself in their shoes, because I've been on the client side of things with a lawyer, too, for various you know, matters. Um, and so I know how it feels to be waiting for a reply. And then you're like, oh, did they get it? Did it go to spam? Did they whatever? You know, and it's like, I don't think anybody would expect an, an immediate, very detailed, comprehensive like reply, especially if it involves research or opinion or analysis or whatever. But just that acknowledgement. I heard you. I got your email and I will get back to you. You know, that is a critical piece of I think it should be like work that we especially when you're dealing with um pretty high stakes so to like that's a really important part of me and a part of our firm and so yeah yeah I love that thank you um and look before we run out of time uh I, I do want to ask you about the year ahead so when you when you think about your business and what you're doing because you've got a lot of moving parts all the time mm-hmm. Do you work in three months, six months, nine months, 12 months? How do you plan ahead? How does that work for you? And what are you hoping to achieve over the next six, 12 months? Yeah, so we try to plan um, ahead in terms of normally like a year ahead, you know, in advance. So Ray, my brother and I, who's another partner in the firm, as I mentioned, he we, we have been working through lawyerists to go to these like kind of day you know they happen periodically but essentially we like do a virtual retreat where we review the previous year try to figure out priorities for the upcoming year and then ideally review them on a quarterly basis um we have one of the things that we did in the firm that worked out so well is we established a leadership team um so it's not just me or ray if there's a team of us um it involves you know another attorney um the supervising case manager marketing person operations and so we all get together and kind of go over um, projects, goals, things like that on a consistent basis. We meet every two weeks to kind of review those. And that has been really fundamental to us. Because um, I think when we started doing this, it was like you set goals and then you don't really look at them till the end of the year. It's like you're not probably going to meet your goals if you're not looking at them in that way. So ideally, we're kind of goal setting, but then reviewing like periodically Um and yes, that's kind of how we work in terms of that. And I would say, what am I looking forward to? I, okay, so the ebook should be out by the time this is, this podcast is out. And so, um, you know, that is, you know, immigration for startups. Um, So talking to, you know, potential, you know, readers of that about their immigration options, continuing to work on startup related immigration um you know we're doing some more with like vcs and things like that as well in the startup community and we're also working on this like global um network in relation to one particular option which is the h1b cap exempt so there's some other things going on with like some groups in the midwest global detroit was spearheading that and we went to dc with them some more stuff on that so yeah just like a busy time ahead um I haven't really traveled as much over the past few years I haven't gotten fully back into it but um I'm going to be speaking at some conferences this year for the first time really since the pandemic um so that should, should be fun and um hopefully take a you know some some time off as well over the year yeah that is allowed I believe I, I think we're allowed to do that required I would yeah, say I, yeah absolutely 100% <laughs> yeah um well listen that's great and uh if people want to reach out and get in touch with the McEntee Law Group if they want to find out more about the books where are you sending people to these days is it the website is it your LinkedIn profile obviously we'll put the links to, to various things in this episode but where's the best place for people to find you online Fiona so yeah, people can find us on McEntilaw.com. Um, I my biggest platform in terms of like regularly posting is probably LinkedIn. Um, our firm though has a newsletter that we send out 
periodically only obviously about immigration specific news um so I would say if you want to sign up for the newsletter um, and then, you know, the, the we try to be as accessible to clients as possible. So consultations can be booked online. You know, we do work with a lot of startups. And so we're trying to make sure that we're like having a modern approach to people contacting us as well. So we try to, you know, meet people where they're at in terms of that. So you don't have to pick up the phone to call us. You can communicate with us in other ways. Um, and yeah, but for me personally, LinkedIn don't know where Twitter will be in a in a while, but my handle on Twitter and Instagram is US Visa Lawyer, but my name on Fiona McEntee on LinkedIn. Um, and I try to post. And I think that's where we connected on LinkedIn. And I love your LinkedIn posts. So um Yeah, I think originally we probably did yeah, connect on yeah. LinkedIn. Yeah. It's a good it's a you know, social media and those type of platforms. It's great for connecting with people around the world and then relationships build and you know you end up talking to people about different things but uh yeah, yeah it, it, it is great yeah and it, it obviously people can go to the company website they can you know connect with you on linkedin and uh, it sounds like for startups and for people that want to get in touch there's various ways that you can sort of begin discussions with them which is great and we'll put links to the books and everything else in in the episode fiona um thank you so much yeah well, well look um is there anything else we need to touch on that I've missed or have we covered everything? I don't think so. I just want to say thanks for the opportunity. I mean, I know sometimes people can stray away from discussing things related to immigration because it can be, you know, considered like too political or, you know, partisan. But I believe that really sincerely believe that most people are actually a lot closer on this issue than than. Then we think, I mean, of course, there's extremist views, but I think for most people, once we can have like a discussion about some of these things and they it's sometimes a lack of just information and understanding about how the system works. And so I, again, probably going back to my optimism, I firmly believe that we can come to some resolution and some kind of solution in relation to some of these things. And I do think that people are, you know, can get a lot closer on these issues than maybe some some people might be led to believe. So that's, again, my vote for coming together, kumbaya, and trying to get some, some you know, compromise and resolution in relation to some immigration issues. But thanks for discussing it i appreciate that you've given me this opportunity to share well, some of these things fiona it's been great thanks so much for taking time that brings us nicely to the end of this episode and for sure working together and working through these challenges is ultimately what it comes down to um but thank you for being on the global discussion thank you to everybody who's been watching or listening to this episode around the world uh, make sure you like follow subscribe do all the normal things you do with the podcast we'd like the support and i hope you join me back here for more discussions with creatives leaders and thinkers so thank you very much for your honor it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up with you thank you take care